0: Okay, Matthew 26 will be in verses 17 through 30. Hopefully, you can see this. If you can, I'll try to be real clear as we go through. As we walk through this passage this morning, it's a focus on the Lord's Supper. We call it the Last Supper, but in another way, it's, it's the first of these suppers. And this is really part one. So, we're going to be looking at this together this week and then again next week together. And what we'll see is this central truth that the Lord's Supper is a declaration that Jesus' grace is sufficient for us it's a declaration that jesus grace is sufficient for us and as we uh, do this we'll see three primary sections first the preparation for the supper as jesus has his disciples go and prepare to eat this meal together confrontation during the supper where jesus calls out judas during this meal and then the institution of the supper in verses 26 through 30 so preparation confrontation. An institution so as we begin together i will read these verses matthew 26 verses 17 through 30 now on the first day of unleavened bread the disciples came to jesus saying where will you have us prepare for you to eat the supper he said go into the city to a certain man and say to him the teacher says my time is at hand i will keep the passover at your house with my disciples And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now the church today recognizes baptism and the Lord's Supper as two important practices given to us by Christ before he ascended uh, back to heaven. Some churches use the word, uh, the term ordinance to describe these practices. Others use the term sacrament uh, to describe these things. And in my view, both of these terms can be a little bit tricky because ordinance sometimes communicates too little as if, as if there's not enough uh, weight placed. But on the other hand, sacrament sometimes uh, places too much weight on the Lord's Supper and baptism, and it can ascribe too much to these things. So it can be a little bit tricky. Yet when we think about baptism in communion or baptism in the Lord's Supper, there's often a distinct uh, different emphasis in people's minds, especially among people of Baptist convictions. So since the turn of the 17th century in England, Baptists have placed great importance on the meaning of Christ's final words to his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you, and baptizing them and so baptists in particular have placed a special emphasis on the meaning of baptism or believers baptism yet it's easy to overlook also the central place that the lord's supper had in christ's teaching not christ's last commission but his last meal with his disciples so we're going to take this week and next week to drill into jesus's teaching on the lord's supper now In recent weeks, as we've gone through this COVID crisis, we've experienced a number of different things. Uh, Some of us are are single or live in retirement centers or by ourselves. Others of us are in family groups. And we've experienced meals in a different way, perhaps, than we had before. We don't as much eat out, perhaps, in social settings. And so family meals have kind of taken on an increased importance. In fact, I've heard some people reflect, like, That's been one of the encouraging things about this, has been spending more time together during something like this. But meals and family meals, the the idea of getting together, they're they're cultural events, not just individual events. In fact, in our culture, big events are highlighted by food or by meals. So uh, wedding feasts in some cultures can last days or weeks. And even in our culture, uh, the reception takes on a great significance as well. Now here in the United States, we get together for holidays. Uh, Thanksgiving in particular, we think of a feast, uh, Christmas food, but even something uh, like this weekend, where we commemorate Memorial Day. People think of, of food together, grilling out or being outdoors, and these, these time together. Now Jesus has had many meals with his disciples in the three years that he's lived with them and been, and been training them. But of all of these meals, There's one meal recorded not once in scripture, but four different times. And it's this one. It's what we call the Last Supper. It takes place during a Jewish holiday. But Jesus takes the events surrounding this, and we see that all that's happening here is anything but celebration. Disciples, they fall like flies. At the end, there's not a single one standing. And yet, even in these darkest days of Christ's life, he gives us a remarkable picture of God's grace. Now, for 1,500 years, God's people, the Israelites, have celebrated the Passover. They've observed the Passover. And this meal that we just read about and that we're going to discuss together this morning is the last true Passover. So for a millennia and a half, God's people have celebrated Passover. Now, the way that people celebrated Passover differed based on kind of where you lived in Palestine. So if you live in the north in Galilee, you typically celebrate it on Thursday evening. So they marked uh, this Passover day from Thursday morning to uh, Thursday sunrise to Friday sunrise. In Jerusalem, however, they celebrated it on a Friday because they would celebrate it from Thursday sunset to Friday sunset. So there's a little bit of a different way. And so what this means is That as someone coming from Galilee, Christ can remember, celebrate the Passover on Thursday with his disciples in this last supper. And then on Friday at the Passover in Jerusalem, he can himself be the Passover lamb. So he both partakes of this supper and then is himself the next day, the sacrifice. And so the first thing we see in this passage in verses 17, 18, and 19 is preparation. Preparation. Now, You may remember from last week that Jesus and his disciples are staying in Bethany. But Deuteronomy 16 indicates to us that Jews can't celebrate the Passover just anywhere. They have to go to Jerusalem. So even though Jesus and his disciples are just outside of town, they have to go into town to take this meal together on Thursday evening. So Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him to get the meal ready. Now, the conversation that takes place here is probably the tail end of a longer conversation with his disciples we've just got just a bit of it but the end of verse 17 is interesting because the way the disciples phrase this they say where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the passover both of these yous are individual as if jesus is doing this himself so jesus has already given them some idea like hey i'm ready to go uh, take this meal now Now, this Passover celebration that we're about to observe isn't just another set of pilgrims eating this meal. It's a particular meal with a host who directs how the meal goes. It's not as if everyone sits down and just begins eating. Rather, there's a particular form, content, and process to this. Now, there's going to be something different in this particular Passover meal that Jesus celebrates, but it's not yet clear to his disciples how different it will be. Now, as we compare the different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of this moment, we get a fuller picture of everything that happens next. Now, it's not been long. It's just been a handful of days since Jesus entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. And here in this moment, we have strong echoes of that entry, that triumphal entry. Jesus, in that moment, sent disciples ahead to prepare. And here he sends two disciples on a secret mission. And there's a weird sign, a particular circumstance connected to what's about to happen. Luke 22 tells us that the disciples, these two disciples, are Peter and John. So Peter and John go ahead, and it's their job to make sure that everything is ready. Now, in the triumphal entry, the sign is there's a colt tied up. And Mark's gospel tells us that in this story, it's not a colt, but rather a man carrying a jar of water. Now, that tells us there's something unusual in particular about this man. He's from a wealthy household. Because if you're from a poor household, it's the woman's job, the wife, the daughters, it's the woman's job to carry the water. But in larger, wealthier households, household servants, male servants would do this as well. Now, imagine how these two disciples felt. They're going into Jerusalem, and you remember, it's packed with people. There are tens of thousands of people. There are possibly hundreds or thousands of men in Jerusalem this week carrying around jars of water. How are they going to find the right one? Yet they find the guy. Follow him in Mark fourteen sixteen. It tells us they found it just as Jesus had told them. So everything happened exactly like he predicted it would. Now, part of Uh, Passover, for the people that live in Jerusalem, is they are to have rooms prepared for guests to come as well, for pilgrims to stay in and and partake in this meal. In this room, this upper room that Jesus and his disciples go to is apparently such a room. So it's there that the disciples prepare the Passover meal. Now, in a Passover, you sacrifice a lamb, which if you've eaten a hunk of meat, you know, that, that can be a decent amount of meat. And so 10 to 20 men would eat one Passover lamb. They'd sacrifice it at the temple, leave a portion of the, the, the animal there as an offering, and then they, they'd go and they'd have this meal together. So Jesus, the true Passover lamb, is going to the slaughter, and yet even as he goes as a victim, he demonstrates his kingly sovereignty by predicting exactly what would happen. He's not passively going to the cross because he has no choice. He's decisively headed toward the cross because it's his mission. He goes as it is written. He is accomplishing God's will. So even in this moment of abandonment and defeat, Jesus proves that he is king. Even when to all outward appearances, he is going to be defeated and die. He appears to be the victim And yet god's plans are not thwarted they are being acted out just as god said that they should be now when we're in the midst of a trial or a crisis it's easy for us to miss mark signs of god's goodness because we see our trial so clearly so we're walking through life and uh, we become ill we focus on our health to the point where it's hard to see God's goodness. Uh, We're laid off from our job, we experience a loss of income and the hardship is so big in our mind, it's hard for us to see God. We're walking through a different, difficult season in our marriage, we're in conflict with our spouse and all we can feel is that conflict. Or maybe you're a kid at school, you planned to graduate and you're graduating but it doesn't feel like graduation because All of the the tradition and the ceremony, the relationships associated with that are gone. And in those moments, there are signs all around us of God's goodness. There are signs all around us that God is accomplishing his will. And yet we miss them because we fixate on our trial. God is still in control. The sun comes up every day. God's mercies rise new every day with the sun. God still sustains creation. People still have food to eat. God still provides for his people. And in the midst of a discouraging trial, though, it's so easy to get so close to the the trees that we miss the forest of all that God is doing. We see this one tree, this one circumstance, and we miss the totality of the circumstances around this moment. We fail to see all that God is doing. God God could be doing 10 million things in the world and we see one of them and we lose sight of everything else that God is doing. So if you find yourself this morning caught in a difficult circumstance in the midst of a trial, zoom out a little bit and reflect not just on this one thing, but on all that God is doing, on all of the ways that we see God's goodness at work in the world. Now, doing that won't make this trial disappear. But it may change our perspective enough to walk through that same trial in faith, to walk through in a way that allows us to see God at work in the midst of this trial and breathe fresh life into our soul. I mean, Jesus is going to the cross, the most horrible circumstance ever faced by, by any human being. And yet God is still accomplishing his will in the midst of this moment. It's a remarkable thing. So we move from this moment of preparation to the meal itself and Jesus' confrontation of the traitor Judas. Secondly, we'll see confrontation in verses 20 through 25. Now, the rest of our section today focuses on this meal. It's a Passover meal, but it's unlike any Passover that we've ever seen now matthew uses uh, something that's more common to mark but matthew uses it occasionally it's what we sometimes call a sandwich technique in other words he puts something in the middle of two pieces of bread and so he's got two predictions here on the front side jesus predicts judas's betrayal on the back side he's going to predict, predict peter's denial and in between we have the heart of this section and that is this meal And this points us to a key understanding because what surrounds this meal, complete failure on the part of the disciples. There's not a one who makes it through this unscathed. And yet, even in the midst of this, there's this meal that reminds us that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for even our worst sin. And Jesus doesn't give his life for the best of these, but for the least of these. And not just for the poor, the sick, the lame, the weak but for these friends who run when trouble comes for the friend who betrays him the disciple who also vows to be loyal but in the end will curse god when the pressure comes so when paul writes later in romans 5 while we were still sinners christ died for us the disciples are saying amen that's me we were the chief of sinners this has huge implications for these men now peter's denial is what makes him famous but all of the disciples not just peter are going to abandon jesus there's not one who makes it through now exodus chapter 12 uh, spells out what a passover meal is like and so it's no doubt what this gathering is like the head of the household uh, calls everyone together To eat a whole lamb together if the family is small is is small they'd probably celebrate with multiple families because it's going to be a lot of food now unlike most jewish meals where the men and the women eat separately the passover is truly a family meal where men women and children everyone eats together everyone is welcome at one table Now, the meal consists of four different sections, four different stages, each of which concludes with drinking a cup of wine. And during the meal, the family sings psalms, the Hallel psalms, which praise, you might hear the word Hallel, hallelujah, Psalms 113 to 118 during various parts of the meal. So they have various parts where they'd stop and they would sing together. Now, while the family eats the meal, it was the youngest boy's job to ask questions. Now, if your house is like mine, you get a lot of questions from your kids, but these weren't any questions. They were a particular set of questions, uh, like a catechism, like who led us out of the wilderness? How did God lead us? And so by asking questions, it was the head of the house's job then to respond and tell the story of the Exodus and illustrate how the symbols within the meal recreate that amazing moment in Israel's history. So so it's a meal, but it's a story of God's redemption of his people. Now, the meal starts in the evening, and it doesn't end till almost midnight. It's an hours-long ordeal. It's no small meal. And evening marks the beginning of this meal, verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us about the whole meal. As we said, the whole meal is hours long. But he brings us in at the tail end of the meal, we think it's probably the third section out of the four sections. that the disciples are, are sitting around the table together and Jesus starts with a word that we think of as the end of something, but here it's the beginning. It's the word amen or truly. In the old King James, they would say, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Now we end our prayers this way. Jesus begins, he marks the beginning of this moment. So in this most sacred of meals, Jesus is about to predict what he and one other disciple already know is true. One of you will betray me. Now Judas has spent the last few meals, few years as as a trusted member of this band of brothers. He's shared meals, he's hung out, the crowds have gone, He's there around the fire talking with Jesus. He's been an all-around good guy to all external outward appearance. I mean, he, like the other disciples, left his former life to jump into life with Jesus. And yet, he's no friend of Christ. He is a traitor. Jesus knows this. And in verse 23, he echoes Psalm 41, verse nine. Even my close friend in whom I trusted The one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You see, Judas is in a community of Christ followers, a community of disciples, and yet in the midst of all of these people, he is alone. His true life, his heart has remained anonymous, even though he's surrounded by people. You see, it's possible to be connected to followers of Christ by every outward appearance, and yet, completely alone when it comes to truly being known and knowing other people in community. Christianity isn't merely a worship experience, it's not merely a set of cultural norms where good Christian people, we do good Christian things. That was Judas. True Christianity is knowing Christ and being known by Christ. It's knowing the community and being known by the community. It's growing in the word together. You see, Judas is physically present with Jesus, and yet he's truly against Jesus. And in verse 24, Jesus pronounces judgment on him. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And here we have one of the great tensions in scriptures. Jesus says, it goes as it has been written. So God is sovereignly bringing about his plan. God is sovereignly bringing about salvation. And yet, woe to Judas for betraying him. Judas is still responsible personally for his sin. And Jude, I mean Judas is, I mean, he's like the best of the best and the worst of the worst. You know, I mean, it, it's, hard, it's hard to figure because... Even, even as Jesus is calling him out personally here, he continues the charade in verse 25. Is it I, teacher? I mean, could I be the one? Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now, keep in mind that in verse 22, what's happening here is all the disciples are going around asking Jesus, Am I the one? Am I the one? Am I the one? And so, as everyone goes around, all 12, J- Judas takes his turn. Is it I? And Jesus responds literally, you said it. You said it, Judas. Well, as we saw a few weeks ago when we were in Mark chapter 3, Jesus was choosing his disciples. And even in the moment there where he chooses his disciples, Judas is marked as the one who would betray him. And in this moment, Judas is such a good hypocrite that even after Jesus points him out and Judas gets up to leave, The disciples think he's leaving to go get more food or to go do a good deed for the poor. I mean, he's literally going out to betray the Son of God, and the disciples think he's out on some errand of mercy. I mean, Judas is among them, but he's not truly one of them. So how can we fight a tendency to be part of a group without being truly known? Cultural Christianity can have all the impression of a relationship with Jesus, without a life of genuine trust in Christ. It's like it's it's like this. So uh, right now, in fact, uh, last weekend or two, I've I've watched something I've never seen before, and and that is some international soccer matches with no one in the stands, and it's it's a weird thing. It's kind of quiet. It's like. I don't know, like you're watching pickup soccer and yet these people are making millions of dollars uh, to run around and and chase the ball. And I imagine the same thing eventually is gonna happen in in our leagues, in in, in baseball, football, basketball, that the stands are gonna be empty and yet people are gonna be pursuing the competition. And yet normally when we uh, hit a sporting event, there are groups of people there. There are the participants and then there are the spectators. Now often, Uh, as spectators, we feel like we're in the event. We feel like we're there. And, you know, if we cheer louder or if we boot, like we could actually affect the outcome of the game, but we're not really in the game. And what happens is when it comes to Christianity, there are no spectators. There are no participants on the outside. We aren't all here cheering for team Jesus while a few people do the work. No, in Christianity, we're all engaged in this mission. We're all engaged in this together. True Christianity isn't something that people observe and cheer for. It's discipleship we all engage in. And if your relationship with Christ is one of looking on, you go, you go, you got it. You're missing what it means to truly follow Christ. It's it's not observing, it's participating. And so we can't sit back as sort of a spectator community and expect that others will do the mission. What Jesus calls all of us to is to engage in this mission together. So don't be content being part of a community where you just observe what happens at church. But remain anonymous. Now sometimes anonymity is, you know, is innocent like that. But other times it's a little more sinister like what Judas has going on here. Covering a secret sin under a nice smile and a good set of clothes. In the end, Judas's secret leads to his destruction. And it's possible that someone here is embracing a secret that is destroying you, tearing you, corrupting you from the inside out. Learn from the life of Judas, it is not worth it. Trust. The community that God has given you and get help for your sin. If you find yourself the bearer of a secret that is destroying you, turn before it is too late. So there's this preparation, this confrontation, and now Jesus moves to the institution of the Lord's Supper in verses 26 through 30. Institution, verses 26 through 30. Well, this Passover meal serves as a a transition of sorts in the history of Israel, and also in the history of redemption. For centuries, 1,500 years, God's people have remembered the Passover. So Jesus is now going to take uh, the sights of his people and lift it from this, this meal and the exodus, the small picture of redemption, and lift their sights to the grand cosmic picture of redemption, the cross, the redemptive work of Jesus in delivering people from much greater enemies than Pharaoh. Matthew's and Mark's accounts are the shortest we have in Scripture of this meal. John's is quite long and he fills in a lot of details that we don't have here in Matthew. A lot happens this evening before Jesus' arrest. This is the evening when Jesus gets down and he washes the disciples' feet. He gives a farewell address in John 13, 14, 15, 16, this long address, is teaching moment to his disciples. John chapter 17 is Jesus' well-known high priestly prayer where he prays not only for those disciples, but also for us, those who believe through their word. And in this remarkable moment, all this is happening, the disciples on this night have yet another argument about who will be the greatest. To the very end, they don't get the point. And Matthew tells us about everything else that happens. Peter says, I'll never betray you. Jesus goes and prays in Gethsemane and then he's arrested. And in the midst of all this, verses 26, 7, and 8 form the heart of Christ's teaching on the Lord's Supper in what we call the words of institution. In other words, these words have accompanied the observance of the Lord's Supper for almost 2,000 years. Jesus said them first. And now Christians throughout the world engage in this supper through these words. Verse 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. These words are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke. And then Paul gives us a bonus record of these in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, four times in God's word. Now, one of the great significances of this moment is what Jesus commands us to remember. Now, when we think about the Christian calendar. There are two holidays that kind of stand above others, Christmas, the incarnation, and Easter, the resurrection. In fact, in the early church, that church began worshiping on Sunday rather than Saturday, the Sabbath, because of the importance of the resurrection. But before Jesus leaves his disciples, what did he command us to remember? His death, not his birth, not his miracles, not many other things he's done, but his death. Why? Why does he say, remember my death? Because the death of Jesus is unlike any other. Now, tomorrow is Memorial Day, a a holiday that began sometime during the Civil War and was instituted nationally uh, in 1971. It's a day that commemorates the sacrifices of those who have given their lives in service to our nation. And so Memorial Day is a commemoration, a remembering, but it's also in culture, a celebration. Because the deaths of those men and women earned and preserved our civic freedom. Yet to compare Memorial Day and the cross of Christ could also miss their vast differences. Jesus himself said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And in an infinitely greater way, the cross of Christ is a sacrifice worth celebrating. Because Jesus died not for his friends, but as Paul says, for his enemies. Jesus' death is for those who hated him. And I'm not talking just about the soldiers in the crowd. Certainly it includes them. But God's word tells us, he's talking about us. Romans 5 verse 10, it tells us, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We are born into this world as rebel sinners against a holy God. And yet Jesus died for these rebels. And he died for enemies, not from one nation, but from every corner of the globe. And anyone who's here this morning without a personal relationship with Christ through faith can turn from his sin or her sin and trust him. And if that's you here this morning, would you trust Jesus today? So Jesus gives us a special way not only to remember his death, but to celebrate and even preach his death. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the Lord's Supper proclaims Jesus' death till he comes. So it's this meal in this moment, and yet it begins in the most most ordinary way as they were eating. So imagine the scene. Jesus and his disciples, they're there at the table eating and he picks up a loaf of bread and he prays over it. And then he says something strange, this is my body and offering it to them. And it's that moment with Jesus' words that this ordinary meal takes on unique significance. Like everything else, the disciples don't fully understand in the moment. But they'll look back, and then they will understand. And he takes a cup, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is for the forgiveness of sins. And we can trace this covenant all the way through Scripture, from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The old covenant is sealed with the blood of sheep, bulls, and goats. The new covenant is sealed with the blood of the Son of God himself. The old covenant must be offered many times, but the new covenant is shed only once, yet remembered forever. When God made the covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, Moses threw blood, sprinkled blood on the people in Exodus 24 as a sign of the covenant. Jesus sheds his blood as a sign and seal of this new covenant, what God has declared in Christ that our sins are forgiven. So when we come to the Lord's table, it's a fresh reminder that Jesus' body and blood are given for anyone who comes to faith in Christ and that God's grace is for us today. The bread is a reminder that our brokenness is healed as Christ is broken for us. The blood is a reminder that the stain of our sin is removed by the most viscerably visible substance, blood pouring from a human body from the veins of the Son of God. The table is a fresh declaration of our dependence on the sacrifice of Christ and a fresh reminder of the grace of God in Christ. And this table is God's gift to us today. It's like the person struggling with anxiety and fear And this fear takes you captive. You can't get away from it. And Even if people don't go with you, it goes with you everywhere you go. It's louder than any other voice. And in those moments, what do you do? You can run to the reminder of this table to remember Jesus' anxiety in Gethsemane. Christ who is anxious and yet never sinned. His blood a sacrifice sufficient for any sinful anxiety we express. And so the anxiety of Christ is illustrated in this table is a fresh reminder that we don't need to be anxious, but that we can, as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all our anxiety on Christ, place it on Christ, because he cares for us. And the bread and the cup are a fresh reminder every time that Christ cares for us. The Lord's Supper is a declaration that Jesus' grace is sufficient for Peter, for his failed disciples, and sufficient for us. So let's thank God not only for the death of Christ, but also for this meal given to us by Christ as a means of receiving God's grace to make us more like Christ today.